0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. And today I have the privilege of having Michael Dallas here. He's the head honcho at Drive Sales Consulting. Welcome to the show, Michael.
1: Hey, Umar. So happy to be with you today.
0: So we're recording this on audio, but we're seeing each other through a video. And all behind you, I'm seeing steering wheels from sports cars. So tell me why the fascination with drive, because I love driving too.
1: Uh, just uh, an incredible car geek from uh, childhood, and unfortunately it continues. I like to think I have it under control, but now just my matchbox cars have turned into much more expensive cars. Um, and when I was trying to figure out what should I call my consulting firm way back when, um, I love the idea of drive um, and uh, the parallel with driving sales, so that's the combination.
0: So what do you think came first? Was it a feeling of drive, driving to achieve, or the actual car and what we did with it?
1: (laughs) Pretty sure drive may have come before the automobile. Uh, It
0: may have, but that's a question for Wikipedia. Sales is a challenging business. If things are going really smoothly, pretty much you've got something that you're an order taker. You just go and say, would you like? And they say, yes, I want it. But in complex sales... Where there's like large amounts of money being exchanged, risk for companies bringing on new technology or ideas, then that changes the equation, and that's what you do: is you help people get teams together that win. So walk me through one of your clients.
1: I'm happy to, and I think your point also resonates with me. Uh, selling selling is really easy uh, if you don't really think about it, um, but that doesn't mean you do it effectively. Right. Uh, so I'll, I'll just give you an, I'll give you an example of a project I'm working on right now. Um, it's with a, a midsize uh, professional services firm. They're a consulting firm, and the challenge the managing partner had is um, they have twenty five consultants, um, mm-hmm. five of whom are rainmakers, twenty of whom will not go out and make uh, any kind of networking effort at all. And um, it's an interesting arrangement because you know what her challenge is is how do I get more people doing biz dev?
0: Yes, makes perfect sense.
1: And the challenge is that you got twenty people who are very comfortable with the status quo. You got the management managing partner who's not, and you've got the five consultants. They're not either because they feel like they're over contributing. Um, And so what she wants to figure out is how how do we figure out. Can more of these people do biz dev work and how do we support them? And that's where I help her. Getting data that is brilliant. Is the right thing and then the right decisions to make to support these people.
0: So walk me through how you do that because I've got deep interest in, in an issue like that. And so this is going to be a great conversation. So other than using tasers, what are you thinking?
1: Yeah, tasers, I'm not sure those are legal. Omar, but... um,
0: Depends which state. Nevada, that might be okay. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) California, just about everything's
1: illegal where I am, uh, except for cannabis, of course. Um, So, you know, I think where where we start, just because I've learned over the last 10 years that, you know, this managing partner, partner, like most leaders, um, has got her ideas about what the problem is, Uh, but her ideas are not really, they're not grounded in data, and she's also very close to the problem and the people. Um, so, what I do is I give her some objective, accurate data on her people and her processes and her systems. And what that allows her to do is really um, get it objective and get it accurate so she can make the right calls instead of wasting time by just doing things that she thinks are right, which could be, but odds are they won't be. So, we always start with a data driven approach. And that tends to make all the follow-on decisions much easier.
0: Brilliant. Do you use an assessment?
1: I do. I use an assessment that's, um, it's unique. It's sales specific. Uh, I don't own it, but I'm a certified partner for it. Um, is
0: it OMG or something else?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's OMG, which is is different. And your listeners may know this. Um, what's, what's really unique about it, it's not cognitive. So it doesn't measure IQ. And it's also not behavioral like a DISC. Uh, Assessment—it's um, highly predictive of one thing: will people execute against a business development
0: goal? And brilliant well, yeah. things I like about it because I'm familiar with it. Also, is uh, if for a particular sales rep, $500 is a lot of money, then when they're selling $100, a $100,000 gig and someone says that's too expensive, they're more likely to cave in on price yes. quickly. So it really takes a look at our beliefs around selling around money, around self-worth, because that impacts how we show up in our profession.
1: Yeah, Umar, and as we've talked about before, you know, a lot of it has to do with, like like the rest of your life, has a lot to do with your mindset um, Absolutely. and your urgency to make, make things work. Um, it's not just, um, and I remember the first time I worked with an accounting firm, uh, the managing partner said, you know, well, we'll just give them uh, a CRM database and we'll give them some metrics and that will solve the problem.
0: We'll give them the tools that they won't use. Exactly.
1: And, and <laughs> big shock that that's exactly what happened.
0: You know, what's really amazing is, so again, that's my area of expertise very much is, you know, what's going on there. So a good example is I was working with a client that one part of his psyche Knew he could be successful as a salesperson in this area without a doubt. And another part of his psyche was, I don't deserve. So the way I figured it out is as I was talking to this person, and they're telling me, Hey, Umar, I know I'm going to be great at this. And they're talking in a powerful voice, and their right hand is using powerful gestures. It's like they're Italians, talk with the hands. And then the tone of voice changes to a weak tone of voice and their left hand comes up. But you know, I really don't have a college education and I think that's going to get in the way. But then their other hand comes up, strong voice again, but I know I can do this. And as soon as you see that, you know, there's an internal conflict and I use applied neuroscience to figure out, okay, what's going on and how do we resolve that conflict? So our mindset determines how we show up and you can give people tools, but you can't get them to use
1: it. Yeah, you know, and the the, similar analogy that I use is, um, you know, uh, Phil Jackson, the very best uh, coach of the uh, Michael Jordan era Chicago Bulls, he was asked in a recent interview who was the best athlete that he ever coached. Of course, everybody assumed it was either Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen. And he shocked most people, myself included, by saying Dennis Rodman, which is interesting. So, Dennis Rodman, is the most athletically gifted. I can see that athlete that he ever coached. But if you if you built a team around Dennis Rodman, I doubt that they would win a championship because that was not his priority. Yet, if you take Michael Jordan, he was a winner um, and he needed to win. He had that urgent drive to win. And in salespeople, think about the parallel. You know, we have a lot of people definitely good at questioning, good at listening, good at building relationships but do they want to win? And that's what we need in salespeople.
0: Absolutely. And I think what I find interesting is this, and I'd love to get your thoughts about it, is that we have a financial thermostat that's wired into our psyche from all our experiences around money, self-worth, that we think that we are worth, let's say $150,000 a year. And we can climb up to that number pretty easily. And then being salespeople, it's like, yeah, I want to get to $300,000 because you know money motivates me to go. But then they get stuck and they try hard, but they sabotage themselves because their financial thermostat is set that way. A, have you come across that? And B, how did you get someone to kick up the thermostat so they go higher?
1: Well, I think the first thing you've got to figure out, I mean, every, we all do. I mean, it's just human nature. We all have self-limiting beliefs. Um, so I think if we go back to that, the case that we started with, with the consulting firm, that's one of the things that I try to measure is mindset, you know, yes. your self-limiting beliefs. Um, and maybe that's an area we can partner on because, you know, really, I, I think a lot of it just has to do with it's going to take some time, but it requires more repetition. But if we go back to the consulting firm uh, example that I gave, you know, some of these consultants, they have very specific Uh, limitations on what they believe, and also some misunderstandings. So is it possible to change them? Yes. It doesn't mean we're going to do that in a training class. Um, But they need some really specific, really intensive support to loosen up the death grip on some of these beliefs they have.
0: I was working with some bankers and, uh, you know, how bankers have to be salespeople. Have to. And this was the body language that they used. So, hey, we're bankers. And then they put up their hands in a warding gesture, both of them, and started pushing away we're not salespeople. And this is like the physiology basically is saying, no, that's not us, but that's what they do. And if you have a negative belief around selling, and this is how easy it can be to develop one. You've got cars in the background of the the video conference that we're doing right now. Just picture a mom and a dad going to the car dealership one Saturday morning to look for a new car. And little Sally's in the back of the car, she's five, and they're about to get out of the car. And just before they get out, mom goes to dad Remember, honey, if you like a car, don't let the salesperson know it. They'll force you to buy it. And that five-year-old in the backseat goes, oh, you can't trust salespeople. And that belief goes in the unconscious. And there's a really good chance she'll be a salesperson and she'll reach a certain level of performance. And then that belief deep in her unconscious, like I don't want to be a person that forces people to buy stuff they don't want. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to push against unless you go down at a level of beliefs. Oh, so-
1: it's, it's, it's so true. And I think I've, I, I've seen this pattern, Umar, with, um, with people who don't identify as full-time salespeople, which is a lot of the kind of people that I work with. You know, they're, they're consultants, they're accountants, they're lawyers, they're bankers, they're anything but salespeople. And then, when you think about it, one of those critical moments where they have to ask a tough question, or, or they have to ask for the business, they yep. don't want to be salesy. They don't want to be pushy. So, what do they do? They go the exact opposite direction. And there's a lot. Well, of- you
0: probably don't want to get this right now. I understand.
1: Yeah, and, they, and there's a lot of room between those two extremes, but they don't see that.
0: Yeah, it's really kind of interesting how three-year-olds in any country in any time of history, they know if I want this this is a dad thing. If I go ask dad in this way, I'm going to get it. Don't ask mom. And for other things, ask mom, don't ask dads. So when we were young, we're master salespeople. We have no power, but we control the household. And then somehow along our journey, we'll lose that super ability.
1: Yeah. I'm not really sure why that is. Uh, I'd also probably argue that kids can be master manipulators and good salespeople are not manipulators.
0: No, but I look at it more those kids being fearless, knowing what they want, Mm. and knowing, okay, this is the best way to achieve it. And you may call it manipulation. I call it being strategic.
1: (laughs) Good. I I like yours as much more optimistic than mine.
0: One of the areas that people fall into a challenging place is you get a salesperson who is really, really gifted at what they do. Then of course, you know, management goes, let's screw this up. Let's turn them into a manager. And a lot of times they tend to try and get salespeople to do exactly what they do. Yes. I want to make them in my image. So how best do you think we should select a manager? And then how do we guide them to be effective managers? Such an important question.
1: Um, So I think the first thing is the the criteria. You've got to have good criteria for any position. And you've got to think about in your company, your organization, what are the criteria for an effective sales manager? And it's not just effective sales performance. Now, that does have some benefit. Because if you don't really understand clients and you don't understand how to sell effectively, that's going to bleed through in your sales yes. organization. So that's where sales knowledge can be helpful. But I, I think about four major competencies that I look for in a sales manager. They ought to be- Number one. Motivator. Yes. Number two, uh, they should be great at coaching. Number yes. three. They should be great at driving accountability. And number four, they should be great recruiters. And I wouldn't necessarily say that all four of those are equally weighted. It definitely changes by organization. But those would be the four competencies that I would look at first. And so even if somebody has been successful in one role, that doesn't exempt them from having to satisfy the four criteria of this new role that they're applying for.
0: And if they're weak in one, that's great to know because they can actually uh, offload that to somebody else that might be really good at it.
1: Right. And in large companies, you know, an example would be recruiting. You know, they don't need to be great recruiters because they have an HR business partner and maybe even an internal recruiter. But it's hard to delegate things like accountability and yes. motivating and coaching. So. But to your point, not everybody's going to be perfect in all four of those competencies. But then, you know, we, we've got to work to support them on building up their competencies in wherever they need it for them to be effective in that job.
0: Makes perfect sense. Uh, one of the things I find is a lot of leaders, as well as sales leaders, they have a need to be liked. And sometimes what that does is that they hold off making a decision because they don't want to be the bad guy or they don't hold people as accountable as they should. Oh, we'll give them another couple of months to figure it out. and But that's only human nature as well. And what we need to do is realize that we're doing this for the greater good of the company or the greater good of the team. Because if you allow people to slack off, then you're getting those people that are actually going out there wholeheartedly. After a while, they're going to go, well, I should take the foot off the gas as well. Like, what's the point?
1: Yeah, there's um, th- that's an insidious problem in organizations. And, and there's a name for it. Uh, it's called the free rider problem. Right. Um, or social loafing, um, which means, you know, people people perceive that they don't have to hustle at some point, And so they don't. And so what happens is that same problem that I talked about with the consulting firm earlier. You've got five people who are pulling their weight and everybody else are free riders. The insidious part of that is your high performers. At some point, they're going to leave because they're sick of it. And and they have, as all high performers do, they'll have many other options.
0: And what's crazy is that if you have a high performer, in sales especially, that according to the American Society of Training and Development, they have a new name now, I don't know what it is, but I saw this report, it's like the cost to replace them is 250% of their annual salary, because they've got the relationships with their customers, they know what they're doing to bring someone in the territory, get them up to speed is super expensive. So you can't afford to lose those people.
1: Well, and I, I'd argue for salespeople, um, the gap is much bigger than that, um, because if you take it and, and in different companies, the spread is a little bit different. But really, the key spread is between what does a high performer produce in terms of new revenue yes. and what does your average or low performer produce? And sometimes that's measured in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars.
0: Absolutely. Uh, oftentimes I talk about, you know if you take a look at a sales team, there's three groups of players. There's the A players that walk on water, do amazing things. The only problem is not enough of them. Mm-hmm. There are some C players, unfortunately, in a lot of sales organizations that are coasting and should be uh, shown the door. And then you've got a large group of B players that do a good job. And here's the tragic part. At least half of those B players have the capacity to step into the A column. And the thing stopping them is what's happening between the ears because mm-hmm. they're getting the same training, but something in the mindset gets in the way.
1: Yes. yes. Yeah. And, and I guess of-
0: that's what you, you're driving companies to get more of those B players to become A players.
1: Yeah. I have, I have a number of clients who called out the movable middle. Yes. And, and unfortunately what most managers do, myself included, when I was a sales manager, you, and it's, it comes from a good place, uh, but we tend to, Channel all of our energy into the low performers, with the well-intended but misguided belief that we can turn them around. Um, and it's not that that's a bad thing from a human standpoint; it's a great idea. It's just usually the payoff isn't there. I was doing
0: this interview uh, hasn't gone live yet on the podcast. There's a gentleman by the name of Andrew undum He's a realtor, super successful, and what he's doing is a different model than everybody else that I've seen. He brings people into his company. And it's like, do what you want. And some people do well, and then they come to him and say, I want to do better. And then he'll invest in them and tell them what to do to get better. And if they do it, it's a great relationship. If they take the advice and don't use it, then it's like, okay, I'm not spending any more time on you. So it's very much hands off. But if you want to be a top performer, he's going to help you. Whereas most of the other team leaders are investing their blood, sweat, tears, money in every single person they bring on board before they uh, prove what they can actually do. And I thought, wow, that's brave to just kind of go, hey, I'll only help the ones that are going to be top producers. Mm -hmm. And if that's not what you want to be, that's okay. Don't stay here. Or be a mediocre guy on my team and we're not going to invest time and money. And it's turning out to be a very successful formula for him.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I, I could see that. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, being clear when you recruit people. Are they people who are self-motivated
0: or psychologists? That's where the assessment comes in really, really powerfully as a predictive uh, indicator. Yeah. But and I'm- highly highly predictive, right? It's something like 90 somewhat percent. If I remember right, it was like, if the assessment says hire this person, there's a 90 somewhat percent chance within six months, they'll be in the top 50% of your producers.
1: Yeah. So this, and what's, you know, researchers generally look for a a, a predictive validity. Does a certain behavior that's assessed with a tool, does it predict a certain outcome? And looking for a rule of thumb from zero to one, a 0.7 represents significance. Um, And the the tool that I use with the help of uh, Dave Curlin and Objective Management Group is 0.91 in terms of its predictive validity of sales performance. And that's exactly why I use it.
0: What's kind of interesting about Dave is that in some levels, he's like a geek, but he's a charming, great communicator. Cause you'd kind of see somebody like that would be more like numbers and it's like, don't talk humans, but he's very uh, effective at what he does yeah. and very connected to his audience, which is nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and mostly he's built uh, for those, for those of you in your audience who aren't familiar with it. I mean, this has been a, um, uh, a work of his in progress for three decades and, and 2 million people have taken his survey across 200 industries in 130 countries. Um, so you know, if, if you're looking to get real data that will help you make the right decisions, it's, it's a great resource.
0: Brilliant. Uh, Michael, before we part company uh, today, for sales leaders, whether they're like lawyers that have teams or financial guys or pure salespeople... What would be three pieces of advice you'd give them to be more effective leaders?
1: Well, let's see. I I, I guess I would go with uh, why don't we call them three C's. Uh, number one would be communication. Uh, mm-hmm. Number two would be um, coaching, and number three would be compensation. And let me just spend a second on on each one of those. Good. Communication. So from a leadership standpoint, if you're looking for people to change behavior and do things more and differently, you as the leader, you got to support that. Don't you can't delegate right. it. And so it's got your messaging has got to be frequent and consistent. Number two, if you're wanting to change people's behavior, um, that's got to start with your managers. Um, equip them to coach. And coaching isn't just having meetings. Coaching is about changing behavior and supporting people and getting them to own it. So getting your managers to be more effective coaches is a key thing that you can and you should do. And then finally, number three, it's not the driver, but I think it's worth looking at compensation plans to make sure that the comp plan that you've got today rewards the behaviors you you desire today, as opposed to the ones that worked in the past.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. My three words would be, uh, these are my favorite words. One is uh, be relevant. And what you're talking about is relevance there.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Are we relevant in our, this moment in time? Integrity, be true to yourself. And number three is focus.
1: Mm. Yeah, love that. And uh, especially that first one, Lamar really resonates with me um, because a technical expert can be good at what she does, um, Mm. allows her to win is when she's relevant to her client.
0: Brilliant. Michael, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I love the interview and looking forward to our next conversation.
1: Me as well, Umar. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results.